Welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the STR Data Lab. I'm joined here with Jason from Placemaker. Jason, are you ready to sort of dive into the numbers and strategy sort of uh, that's driving growth in the short-term rental industry and sort of jump into the STR Data Lab? Yeah, I'm game to talk about whatever whatever's on your mind. You know, let's, have, <laughs> let's have a lot of fun, so. Yeah, let's start off. Just uh, help the listeners understand what is Placemaker and sort of how did it evolve, where did it come from? What, what's the sort of story? Yeah, so we're, we're a venture-backed, tech-enabled startup. My background is institutional real estate development. So I ran a couple billion dollars of development for a publicly traded REIT called Bornado Realty. And my co-founder, a similar background, he ran about a billion dollars of development uh, for a regional developer in Washington, D.C. And so that's probably an important context. In that world, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at how real estate was evolving and changing. And there were kind of two camps. The first camp is the incremental stuff, the utility management or like, you know, cameras to, have to reduce parking attendance, minor stuff. You know, you bring down the expense a little bit or push up revenue a little bit. Uh, and then we also looked at how could real estate fundamentally change or how was it fundamentally changing? And at the time, there was just a lot of focus on reduce uh, the chunk prices and people pay less, um, but get higher utilization of the assets. So think like co-living, co-working, shared conferencing. And we took, we took that one step further and said, well, what you should do is you should get a higher utilization, but you should also co-mingle different kinds of customers so you're able to optimize the real estate through seasons and cycles and, and fundamentally change the income streams that real estate produces. Uh, and so that's what we set out to do is to blend multifamily and hospitality in an institutional way to optimize real estate in urban or high dense markets. We do that today with two products. One's called a pop-up hotel, which is probably the easiest to understand, but the least powerful of the two. And that is, let's say, you know, a major REIT like that we've worked with Avalon Bay, Equity, Camden, Brookfield, whoever builds an apartment building. They deliver 300 units all at once and empty. They hand us 100 units. We furnish it with all brand new rented furniture and we run a basically apartment hotel out of their vacancy as they fill the building up with residents. Uh, that's about 20, just under 20% of our inventory today. We have, we have just over 2,000 units. And then the rest of what we do is we take that same 300 unit building for a partner or on our own account. We bought about a quarter billion of real estate last year. And we run it as a blend of furnished and unfurnished short and long states. We permanently blend hospitality and multifamily in a way that can increase the in-place cash flow by 50, 100, 200%. Business is about five and a half years old. We've raised just under $70 million in venture and growth money for the Opco. We're knocking on a hundred million dollars on the property buy side of equity. And then the debt that comes with that, 260 or so team members uh, across the United States. Uh, we're remote first on the non-property side. So we, I think we're, we're 40 states today. I uh, have team members of 40 states and um, growing pretty rapidly and enjoying watching real estate finally catch up to where it was headed anyway. So, yeah. So you mentioned the pop-up hotel and that, and that brand was, was Y Hotel. Is that right? That brand was and still is Y Hotel. So all of our pop-ups are now Y Hotel by Placemaker. You know, we have one in San Jose right now, a couple in the DC area. Uh, we'll be making more announcements about pop-ups coming and at this point in time, you know, we've done maybe 15, 16 of them, and they're a no-brainer for owners, and they're a great product for customers. They get to stay in, stay in brand new luxury apartment buildings in lieu of a hotel or an Airbnb or whatever uh, with a 24-7 on-site, you know, hospitality caliber staff um, mm -hmm. for, you know, hotel quality experience, but in brand new apartment space. That's great. And, and so that, that started, what, in 2018, 19? Uh, seven, 17. 17. Seventeen. Under Vornado, we ran the first pop-up for Trump's inauguration. Uh -huh. And so I was an executive at Vornado at the time, and we did it as a pilot. 
and we had, you know, the nasty girl shirt and the, the MAGA hats. And I think it was a time when America was maybe a little less, you know, divisive. And they were all talking in the lobby. And um, actually, one of our, our team members had a, a personal incident, so she wasn't able to be there. So I, I was man in the front desk. My wife was pregnant with our now five and a half year old, our dog, which was a puppy then. He's six now. We were all there. It was, you know, it was kind of a scene. And yeah. um, it worked beautifully. And so then we spun the concept out of Ornado Realty in 17 to launch then Y Hotel as a company. And then eight, in 18 started independently uh, launching pop-ups in the United States. Okay. And, and so that's now led to Placemaker. So what sort of was the impetus? Was it the success of Y Hotel and sort of blending the use cases within the same buildings? What, what was the progress and sort of and seeing the success there? Yeah. So we've had the same business plan for all six, five and a half, six years. Okay. So if you look at our very ugly series C deck that was like orange and black, I don't know if I was like in a Halloween theme at the time. It was pretty, it was pretty horrendous. We said there's, there are two phases to the company. Phase one, pop-up hotels. And the reason we started with that is it's free money. So if we make mm -hmm. Avalon an extra million or $2 million during lease up or any of these, these REITs or big companies, it's free money. So everyone's happy. That meant we were an additive good. And we figured that was the right sandbox to learn about channel management, OPEX margins, switching costs, on-site operations, the tech stack, stuff that we ran four years ago where we made a partner a million and a half dollars, we'd make them three today. We would literally mm -hmm. make them twice as much money, but we figured a million and a half was better than nothing. As we got better at all of the core components, we moved to the second phase of our business, which at the time we called a blended community. Today we call hospitality living. And that is that permanent model. And really the whole game for us is to financially engineer better real estate while delivering consumer experiences that are just unmatched in traditional product. And so my expectation is you'll see, and we'll be making some announcements soon about folks that are building ground up buildings specifically for this use, being a bunch of announcements soon actually. And so what you'll see over time is instead of people building traditional apartment buildings or hotels on a lot of these core markets or resort markets, what you'll see is them delivering apartment inventory that's from day one designed to be flexible for a night, a week, a month, a year, furnished or unfurnished. And as that happens, traditional multifamily product will not be the highest and best use in a lot of locations and, and neither will traditional hotels. And we're building the full operating company brand and tech stack to support that, either for our, our own portfolio or for others. And you said this is sort of the, from the sort of vision from the beginning. So how do you see and how COVID sort of impact the way that we live and work, sort of accelerate, sort of delay? Do you feel like it sort of brought that vision more to the forefront? Well, so I guess there's, there's two pieces to that. Piece one is what happens to a company when it goes through something as traumatic as COVID? I guess there's a third piece. What happens to the world through COVID? And like that, yeah. Yeah, obviously, I guess it goes without saying, but like the tragedy of COVID, the loss of life is, is terrible. Mm -hmm. If you for a second, you know, move on to the business side of there's, there's two things that happen. One is what happens to the way people behave. And the other is what happens to companies that go through a traumatic experience. There's like this like terrible, I think it's, it's like a Russian saying or whatever, we're basically like, you know, boiling water hardens eggs and softens potatoes or something, something weird like that. And that's true about a company. You know, if you survive these difficult times, which we obviously did and then thrived, you know, we have three times the number of people today we had pre-COVID. We have almost eight times the monthly bookings, but you survive that, it actually makes the company stronger. So that, that, that ended up being a positive thing for our company. And also, you know, unfortunately for some of our friends and peers meant that their, their organizations are no longer here. And then the biggest change, the biggest change that COVID brought is the changing the way people work. And I, I think what is not talked about enough in real estate is that is the biggest change in real estate you're going to see in our entire generation is that where people work and the way they work will change where they live and where they stay, which will change everything. 
because real estate isn't 100% based on where the feet are. And so that is changing travel patterns. That's changing living patterns. And we are in like not even the first inning. I mean, you're going to see, and there's a question about how much comes to cities, how much doesn't, how much moves to South America, you know, because it's on the same time zone for the 20 year olds that want to go get drunk and have a good time. Like we're about to see this amazing shift, amazing, just tremendous seismic shift in the way people behave. It has benefited us thus far. So I'm sure that your listeners know this, but uh, furnished homes and apartments have a tremendous tailwind. They're one of the fastest growing segments in hospitality. You know, we've seen that in the numbers. I'm in our New York property right now. And we look at something called the rate penetration index, which is you guys are under the same umbrella now. So like we pull STR reports, right? And and we look at oh, a, a set of five hotels in the neighborhood. What rev part did they achieve? And then we look at well, what did we achieve on our units? The property I'm in right now, the last time I saw a rate penetration index was 190 which means we did almost twice the revenue per room as the hotels. And, that, and that's a function of a couple of things. One, hopefully we're doing a good job at the brand and the experience and our team is on site. It's exceptional and the reviews are great. But two is more structural. We're in New York City. There's not a lot of apartment style product. And so there's tremendous pricing power for it because it's not as commoditized as a hotel and there's real need. And so, you know, we're on the right side of that. And, and I think you're going to see more of that. And a lot of that's driven by the pandemic where there's more leisure travel. Uh, there's more folks that don't, live in the city where their company might be headquarters. So they're coming to town for a few weeks for training or for onboarding or whatever. Uh, and that hugely benefits, you know, the institutional product that we run of home style inventory in these core cities. So Airbnb talks a lot about the sort of blending of hospitality and living. Right? Do you see yourselves as the sort of vehicle that that's going to sort of happen and transform through? I'd say we're one player in it. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's like a tidal wave. The idea that living and staying are different is bizarre. It's going to be archaic. Like we're, you know, my five-year-old when he's 20, the idea that you could only live in that building and you could only stay in that building and you could only shop in that building and you could only work in that building is going to be seen as like asinine. Mm -hmm. Like what a horribly inefficient way to use space. And also like what a shitty customer experience in that you only have this one thing at a time in one place. And so... Yeah, we, we plan on being a player in that. We plan on you know, driving a lot of that. But the institutionalization of new asset classes happens by there being a lot of players and liquidity and the equity and the debt markets responding to that after years of you know, seeing years of experience and financials through cycles. And so we'll be a player in it. I'd love to say we're going to win the whole thing. <laughs> but you're going to see, I mean, uh, Marriott announced yesterday, Apartments by Marriott. You know, like you're going to see every major hotel brand get into the space. You're going to see the major apartment operators get into the space and you're going to see different buildings get built for the next generation. So um, yes, we're going to be a part of it, but certainly not the whole thing. So maybe stepping back to structure. So what was it on sort of how you guys were built, how you're sort of uh, structuring your deals that allowed you guys to survive COVID and then thrive? Assuming you guys are mostly in sort of urban areas that saw pretty big pullbacks in performance during the pandemic. So what was it that sort of made you guys different? Yeah, so we have four customers, 12-month unfurnished customers that get hospitality services, 12-month mm -hmm. furnished customers where it's a turnkey home, interim housing, so think like two weeks to two months, your doctor on residency, your training, your reloading, whatever, and transient. What we saw when, when COVID kicked in in March of 20 was transient evaporated. So at that time, our portfolio was running about an 88% occupancy, averaging to stay between two and five nights. Almost immediately, our averaging to stay went from two to five nights to two to four months. Uh, we still maintained an 85% plus occupancy through the heart of COVID. 
And that has to do with the fact that we can play to different sets of customers, that flexibility of product type. So while we were running at, I think in Texas, Virginia, 93%, the hotels were at like nine or 11% occupancy. And so that, that's huge. That was, that was kind of everything. We actually ended up performing better per unit in income, which is ridiculous to say in our properties. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the kind of contracts we did. There was a lot of folks that were displaced that got pulled back from the State Department and from all around the world that needed emergency housing, mm -hmm. which we had in spades. And then I think you also talked about structure. The way we structure our deals is as a management company. We're, we're very asset light business. So there's a lot of venture-backed folks that spent their venture dollars that you're hoping at that point in time to get like a 20 to 40 X on, on furniture or on lease payments or on a bunch of non-tangible stuff. I mean, it's one thing to do that to prove a concept. It's another thing for that to be part of your core unit economics. We just didn't do that. So our pop-ups are profit shares or rev shares. Our permanent stuff are all rev shares. And that's how the business has been built. And when we buy buildings, it's with a different pool of capital. It's with traditional real estate money. And so it's very different return profile. They're looking for, you know, 15 to 25% levered annual returns, not 5,000%. And so that, that's how we've been structured. That's how we did, did well during COVID. And actually that set us up to accelerate afterwards. So the so we, we did a major amount of layoffs, which, which sucked. It was the worst. And we, me or my co-founder personally talked with either every team or every person during that, which also was painful. Um, more for them than for us, but just like the whole experience was just terrible. Uh, maybe 10% of them came back as we started rehiring, which was great. Actually, more than 10% came back, which was just amazing to like get to work with people again. And we took that time. The only real hires we made were on the tech side. And so we really focused during the heart of COVID on how do we continue to build tools? Because now we've run this stuff. And now we know how to operate it. Mm -hmm. Let's make ourselves more efficient at it. Let's improve the consumer experience. Uh, at the end of this year, we've done over a million room nights of management. And it shows um, from when we had done 10,000 or 50,000. I mean, we're... We're dramatically better at it. And I'd say we're still pretty terrible relative to where I would expect that we stabilize. So you, you mentioned sort of length of stay. So where, where are you guys at now? Like what do the sort of metrics look like? Sort of total rooms under management? What does the pipeline look like? And what is the sort of state of things as we look today? Uh, yeah, so we have just, I think it's 2,200 or so units under, under management today. To give you a sense of how dramatic that is, we dropped down to like under 100 at the lowest point in COVID because these pop-ups, they finish, right? Like someone finished a lease up, we give them back the units. Mm -hmm. I think we were down to like in, this is crazy. In February of 21, I think we were down to like 70 units or something and 27 team members. And today, so 18 months later-ish, um, we're at 260 team members, 2,200 units. I think last month we hit a north of 100 million run rate on bookings. And so it's, it's been a pretty dramatic swing as you can imagine. Uh, so yeah, so like today where the, where the business sits, we have inventory across the states, 80% of it's the permanent stuff, 20% is the pop-ups. All of our stuff is structured in that way that I walked you through on either we buy it uh, with, with real estate money and then, we, and then we run it or we run other people's assets. And what's sort of the mix between in the sort of short-term stays versus long-term stays? So all of the pop-ups, that's maybe 300 or so units, are furnished stays. And the average length of stay there is probably somewhere between like three and seven nights, would be my guess. The permanent stuff, which is just under 2,000 units, it's probably like maybe 50 or 60% furnished. So maybe 40-ish percent unfurnished. Mm -hmm. um, and that's moving because there's a bunch that we're furnishing right now as, as leases roll. And probably same on the furnished side, same average length, you know, three to seven nights on the unfurnished average 12-month leases. The, the thing that's interesting, though, is it's very seasonal. So... In the summers, in places like San Jose, we're almost all interns, like 10-week interns. 
interesting. Mm-hmm. I think we had, I don't know if I'm allowed to name the companies, but name all the companies in Silicon Valley. And they, <laughs> their interns were with us, right? Like, you know, and so, which a hotel doesn't do that business and we benefit largely from it. But then in the fall, it's conference season. And so the average like this day might be a night and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the winter, well, in New York City, the winter is transients up, but in the winter and other, and same thing, you know, down in the South, but in the Northeast, it's slower. So we do a lot more long stays. So we dip into the right set of business at any time. So that three to seven night stay is an average probably over the year, but it goes up in the summers for internships in places like San Jose. It shrinks in the falls. Like it's a function of, of the cities we operate in and, and what's going on in that season. So how do you guys choose the markets that you're operating in? Is it sort of supply-based, like whoever's willing to sort of partner with you guys, give you the supply, or are you guys actively going after certain markets where you, you feel like this will succeed? So for the pop-up, if we can create a million dollars or more of extra income for someone on, during their lease-up and activate their building for residents simultaneously, we can do it anywhere. Just mm-hmm. basically parachute a team in. On the permanent side, we expect this to exist in every sub-market in the United States where there's hospitality demand. Our focus when we prioritize is generally on the markets where the spread between hotel and multi is the largest mm-hmm. and we can make the biggest impact to income. But we're also opportunistic. We have partners who are like, hey, I want to do this thing in this city. We're like, okay, uh, I guess we're going to that city because we, we're <laughs> going to get there eventually anywhere. So anyway, so like if there's a deal and a partner that wants to bring us there, we're happy to be pulled into. Otherwise, we focus on where there's the largest immediate opportunity to produce additional income. Are, are you guys the only one operating this sort of model? Who are your competitors? So the only other group that's operating at its scale is called Central, S-E-N-T-R-A-L. Mm-hmm. They're a couple of years behind us. They have more inventory. It turns out when you have Mark Zuckerberg's money, you can go buy 4,000 units. <laughs> uh, that's not meant as a slight to them. You know, all of our stuff, we had to go find people to buy with us or we had to take over for them. And so, but they run, they run a very similar model. And I wouldn't even say we compete with them because we're all so small, right? Like they have 4,000 units. We have 2,000 something units, like. Yeah, I'm right now in FIDI in New York, and there's more than 6,000 hotel keys within walking distance of where I am. And that's like one submarket in one city in the United States of America. So I, we don't really compete with anybody. We compete with the hotels for customers. We compete with corporate housing folks for long stays, although we, we partner with all of them. Like, it's just, it's so nascent. You know, it's not like the two gorillas are fighting out. Everyone's, everyone's babies. We're all like, we, we barely can eat solid food. Like, it's, it's so early. It's so, so early. Yeah, so it's really more, I'm anyone who's proving out this business model, showing apartment owners of or real estate owners how much more money there is to be made with sort of the mixed use concept is good for you guys. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the more the merrier. Uh, Adam Newman just announced Flow a few months ago. They're going to run a similar model. Like, hallelujah. Like, wel- welcome to the party. You know, like the institutionalization of an asset class happens when you add liquidity and you have a bunch of players in the space. If the only hotel operator was Marriott, that would give a lot of investors a lot of pause to buy hotels if that was their only option. And so it is valuable to us for there to be a lot of players in the space. We obviously think we do a better job than all of them and would love eventually to just sell them all our tech, which that means they would pay us on a forever basis. But we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Like I said, it's, it's early days. Hey, you've mentioned your tech a few times. So do, is, is that something you guys see as a big differentiation for you that you've sort of built out your own tech? And what have you guys all developed? What's proprietary there? Well, I guess it's all proprietary and we have focused predominantly on just the things that just make life a little easier for the customer. Mm-hmm. Not like huge customer built side, but the easier things like, oh, you have a 3 p.m. check in at 2.30 p.m. You get a text. This is your unit number. This is your Wi-Fi password just to make life easier. Like what? So you're not having to like screw around. So we've, we've done those those 
you know, automated CRM-based stuff to make life easier for our customers. The majority of our spend on the software engineering and product side, though, as relates to execution and unit economics of the building, has been on our, it's like the back house stuff. It's the how do we put the rooms in and pull them out and list them and put them on channels and push them and change rates and do yield optimization. And it's all of that stuff. We use a single system to run apartments and hotels, which does not exist uh, in the regular world. No. Uh, so you can imagine we've spent some time. Uh, we still have some, some buildings on pure play apartment software that we're rolling over. And some of it we might keep on that just because they're just so apartment heavy. And we have, a, we have one asset that's 530 units, class A apartments. Like that's, a, that's a, a beast to put on your own system as a single, it's actually two towers, but like a single asset. Uh, but the majority of what we have, we, we've, we've, we're rolling over to our backend systems that allow us to have one central place of truth for all things, for accounting, for every cust every interaction with the customers kept in this data warehouse, data lake. And so we're building you know, customer profiles, like the, the, whole, the whole way with which we're able to service these buildings. Um, that's where we spend our money in a very pragmatic way. And like I said, you know, everyone's going to need it eventually. So whether it comes from us or somebody else, it is a huge differentiator today for us on the expense side and the experience side because we're able to more seamlessly run everything. How do you guys think about brand? So obviously you've created your own brand, you've created you know, multiple brands. And do you think brands are gonna be a differentiator given that, and there aren't a lot of sort of well-known or really any well-known brands outside of maybe some of the big booking platforms in the short-term rental space. Do you, do you feel like that's gonna be important? It, it, it's gonna be very important. I think that when a lot of people hear brand, they just think about like, oh, what, is, what are the color schemes and what does it look like? And that's not actually what brand is. Brand is the emotional reaction someone has uh, and the trust or fear when they, when they see something. So like you, Jamie, have a brand. Like everyone knows who you are and what you are and like they love you. And, and so if someone's like, oh, well, Jamie wants to do a podcast with you, immediately in my head, there's a bunch of things I think about, right? Great guy, really smart. You know, we've known each other for a while. It's gonna be fun. It's the same thing for a company where if someone's making a decision about where to stay or where to live, it's the same, it's the same set of logic, right? Like immediately, as humans, we just love shortcuts. You shortcut everything in your head. You're like, oh, that's a place that's gonna have this kind of experience and this ease or this difficulty. The employees are gonna be shitty or nice. Or you just, the whole thing is like instantaneous. What's odd is in traditional multifamily, the unfurnished side, people don't really care about brands today. So like you're saying an Avalon building, an equity building, a Jamie's building, you know, people don't really care. As the level of experience evolves, People will care a little bit more, but it's such a big purchase that they, they take the time to go find the right location and the right unit and the right everything else. And hospitality, you make this decision constantly on a rolling basis all the time for smaller amounts of money. And so brand is more valuable. So if you think about it, most of the money in hotel is made in the brands and Marriott, Hilton, IHG, Hyatt, you know, not as much is made on the real estate. In multifamily, it's the opposite. All the money's made on the real estate and very little is made on the brand. And so I think that will continue to be the case, but as you blend assets, obviously hospitality is a major component. And so it's going to be incredibly critical in order to drive revenue and demand. That's, that's interesting. So given that you guys are in the hospitality space, in the apartment space, we're now seeing some weakness in sort of apartment vacancies. We're seeing some weakness maybe, or some beginning of some weakness on, on the hospitality side. As you look out over the next year, like, do, do you have any concern there? Like, how are you guys bookings looking? Like, is, is there any concern on your end there? I don't mean to be like chicken little and the sky is falling, but we're, at, we're about to enter the first major liquidity crisis since the 80s. 
uh, it's going to get bad just in every way you can imagine. You know, the, the Fed is probably going to continue to push rates until unemployment climbs from three and a half percent to six. And that's four million jobs that are going to go away. And that's, you know, budgets tightening and like, yeah, yeah, it's going to get messy. Uh, and there's going to be real kind of casualty to it. I mean, you would know better than us. We haven't seen softening in hotel rates yet. But one of the reasons they're considered an inflation adjusted hedge is they can move very quickly up or down. Multifamily has softened both in terms of rate and demand. I think that's a function of there was a lot of people that just needed an apartment. And so the multifamily folks assumed that everyone on the rent roll would then move up that 20 percent. And it turns out, no, just just the new guys and gals that were moving. And so you've seen a softness there. And then, yeah, when people lose jobs, that's going to really hurt lease up. So one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is we say, hey, we produce more income or, hey, we make a better experience while doing that. But those are single points in time where the interest rates are, where multi-demand is, how high demand is. The, the real benefit of the model is it changes with seasons and cycles. It is a built-in option. Go back to the COVID example, where our length of stay went to from, two to, you know, from two days to two months, right? So I expect a similar set of things. So our pop-ups, this is how you knew the world was, the world was going to fall apart. We went to do pop-ups. We had a couple of deals that were like signature ready. And our, our potential partner said, hey, look, we don't want to move forward because we can sell the building more empty. Wait, you could sell an apartment building for more money when there's no one living in it? They're like, yeah, because you don't have to go mark to market all the rents. And so people were going to pay more. That's how you knew something was broken. Someone was willing to pay more for an empty apartment building than a full one. Like something bad's about to happen. It's kind of like there's that saying that, you know, when, when your cab driver is giving you stock tips, like it's time to sell. Yeah. That should have been the like huge red warnings. People pay more for empty buildings than full ones. So yeah, we, we think that there's going to be all sorts of things. And, you know, it's very submarket specific. So certain submarkets might continue to win like in Austin, just not as fast as they were, or certain submarkets will lose. And, uh, but yeah, it, it's about to get crazy, but that's the benefit of our models. It's this built an option. So as travel moves down, you know, as travel gets transient, travel gets cut and people are reloading, then we'll, we'll lean into the reload business. And as, you know, just whatever, like, you know, as, a, as apartment rents, maybe flatline, we'll stay, we'll, we'll run pop-ups longer in people's lease-ups in order to continue to activate and monetize those buildings. And so that's the nature of our business is we're in the, the optimization game. And we'll opti- I will optimize for the outside factors on the consumer side that exist. But anyone that thinks that we're about to have a, you know, like a run through the park here in the next 12 months is in for a very rude awakening. I mean, Meta laid off to 11,000 people yesterday or the day before. Yeah, but I'm, we're still adding 260,000 net new jobs. Like, you don't think the Fed can sort of navigate a soft landing? Or you think the writing's on the wall, we're heading into recession, and the Fed's going to overcorrect? It's not even necessarily an overcorrection. More damage is caused by the economy ending in an inflation spin yep. than 4 million people losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. And so... The Fed has to. The Fed has that, to do it. Yeah, the guy that runs the Fed, and look, this I'm not an economist, so you know, like who should I who am I to give this advice? But basically, <laughs> you know, the, the head of the Fed like is a huge like Volcker supporter and thinks that he's the best civil servant that ever existed in the United States. And so and that he saved us in 08 from the crisis by, you know, and so like these dudes see their job as protecting the US economy, not as favoring any one space or any one set of people. Mm-hmm. I, and I guess the last thing I'll say about the economy is that, is that I'm not an expert in it, right? Like I'm reading what everyone else is reading and seeing what everyone else is seeing. I just think what I found is that a lot of people are focused on like the two inches in front of them, their day job, their thing. And it's important to get a bunch of views 
And that is the general sentiment of economists is that this is what's coming. This is what the Fed's going to do. There's just a question of how quickly we snap out of it. But if you think back to the last hundred years, none of this stuff really lasts more more than two or three years. So Mm -hmm. the question is, is this a nine or 12 month thing or is it a two to three year thing or something in the middle? And so as a business, you just have to be prepared for that. And so we have three business plans. Things go great. Things go like we think we're going to go. Things go poorly. And on a regular basis, every eight weeks, we get together as an executive team. We talk about what we're seeing, how we're going to adjust and continue to move forward. And I, you know, when I said before about the boiling water, the Russian, whatever, you know, hard eggs and soft potatoes, those are lessons learned from a volatile time. We've learned that predictability, things are unpredictable. And so we look to plan for a bunch of different situations so that we can build an enduring business and, and thrive when times are good and, you know, batten down the hatches when they're tough and, you know, we're able to thrive and grow in, the, in both those environments. So what, what are the sort of stats you're looking at that sort of give you that real-time view either in the economy or within your own data set to sort of let you know how things are progressing? We see it in real time in our bookings and our leasing, mm-hmm. right? So we have a forward booking curve on every unit and every property that we would expect to, to look like a specific thing. We actually, we price differently than a hotel. A lot of hotels price in a regression-based model, like same store. And it's very commodity. And they say, okay, what did we do last year? What are our comps set doing? We're going to price relative to them. you know. And so there's a bunch of companies that help you do that, like an ideas. We don't do it that way. We, what we do is we look at what we'd expect the booking curve to be for any one unit. And then we price against ourselves. And so if we're falling off that booking, booking curve, that means we need to lower rate. And if we're above that booking curve, it means we need to raise rate. And then we also do something called the displacement function where we say, okay, well, if I take on these 10 90-day stays, and I shrink the pool of inventory I have, what does that do for my booking curves and everything else? And so that's the way we look at it. And we'll see in the numbers, right? That's hotels inflation hedged. We'll see in the numbers in real time. Our booking window in 90 days is, a, you know, most stuff gets booked within 90 days of arrival. So uh, even the longer stay stuff, a lot of it's like, you know, a couple of weeks before arrival. Uh, so we'll see it in the real time and we'll see it in the leasing. We'll see what people want to pay and not. And, you know, same thing there. We'll, we'll adjust. And right now we are seeing a little bit of a softening on multi. Uh, we're seeing no softening on hospitality, but we will on a regular basis being, I mean, every day, our revenue team, we're paying attention to it every single day. And, you know, when things go great, we they, we cheer. When things go poor, we adjust. Not to get into a tangent here, but it's sort of, how are you guys distributing? Is it, is it, and are you seeing a lot of sort of direct, do you just rely on the OTAs? Like, and how do you guys think about distributing and, and sort of pulling together both the sort of short, mid, long-term stays? into one sort of strategy. Yeah, so there are actually disparate strategies that have an interplay between each other. The long unfurnished, the long furnished, and then the, the transient. So on the unfurnished, we lease like a regular company leases. We're not like some kind of, we don't have some magical potion. On the furnished side, uh, we run between 50 and 60% of all the business direct. Uh, a large chunk of that comes from our hospitality sales team. Uh, and a decent chunk of that comes from brand.com, placemaker.com. And then the balance of that comes from the OTAs. So we have Expedia booking Airbnb, and then you know we're on GDS, and we connect. We're on you know, all Concur for people's whatever. We do all of those things, yeah. um, and that's the balance of the business. And we price accordingly. So you know that stuff has a higher take rate. It also generally results in shorter stays. And so we, our pricing length of stay is a really big factor in the way we price, because unlike a lot of hotels that are very rev par focused, we're free cash flow focused. So I don't care if I'm charging 130 a night for a 10 week stay that's going to have a 10% expense ratio on it, or I'm paying, you know, I'm charging 190 a night uh, for something that's going to have a 50% expense ratio on it and have more vacancy. Like 
we optimize the income, not the revenue. And mm-hmm. that is the right way to think about real estate driving, real estate's value on its income, not its revenue. It's not yeah. a tech company, it's not a multiple on revenue. So that's how we think about it. Final question. So if we came back sort of a year from now, and what do you think the headline is going to be for Placemaker, for Jason? Like, and what are we talking about? A year from now, I think, you know, the company is probably 70% to 100% bigger in terms of humans. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully we continue, we will have continued investing in our culture and our team and we'll be, we'll be a strong organization for it. My guess is there's a bumpy year ahead in terms of the markets. And so we'll have probably had to make um, some decisions about what we do about certain areas. Uh, also, I think that you'll see an acceleration in a bunch of in our pop-ups based in our third-party stuff. People see negative leverage or they see slowing lease-ups. And I think that, you know, yesterday's announcement of Marriott entering this space is one of a bunch you're going to see over the next year from mm-hmm. their competitors. For, for me, hopefully I have the same amount of excitement and energy I have today. I'm really, really just, it's been, a like I said at the beginning, a very fast-paced 18 months. I expect the next 12 to 15 to be uh, equally fast-paced. But I, I and, and this isn't talked about a lot, but me and a, I have a co-founder, his name is Bao. Like that's what makes the grind doable is mm-hmm. not doing it alone. And I have an executive team of, you know, almost a dozen folks and like everyone owns their stuff. And so I think what you'll see, you'll see a stronger leadership team from us a year from now. And you'll hopefully see a smiling me because they're surrounded by people that, that let you live a life outside of work. I got two kids. You know, I, I enjoy doing things that aren't just this, although I love this. And so, yeah, so I, I think that's what you, I think you'll see a year from now. You'll see our footprint expand, our team expand, our culture improve, uh, more third-party deals because the market's going to cause some issues for existing owners and developers. Uh, and I think more Marriott-like announcements in the space. Well, that's what I love talking with you, sort of the energy you bring. I feel like you've got a vision uh, and always had a vision and you guys are executing on that vision. And it's, and it's great for our listeners to be able to, to see that and sort of internalize it and how they can sort of create that own, their own vision for their own business and, and execute in a lot of the ways that, that you have and your team has. So really appreciate you joining. And if people want to reach out, they want to find you, how can they connect? Best is LinkedIn. Shoot me know on LinkedIn. I check my messages. Uh, I'll look to get back to people. I might be a little slow, but I'll look to get back to people. And then if they have questions about the properties, reach out to the teams. There's a phone number for every building. There's someone that's ready to answer your call. You want to stay with us. You want to book with us. Uh, you want to partner with us. There's a dozen people on the real estate side or more now. Their names are all on the websites too. So <laughs> anyway, you want to get a hold of us. There's, there's a million of us that are happy to talk to you. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me, Jamie.